This is the Humans of Gaming Podcast, an open and honest conversation about games, life, and belief. Welcome to Humans of Gaming. I'm Drew Dixon. I'm the chief content nerd at Love Thy Nerd, and you are listening to the Humans of Gaming podcast. I don't have a co-host today because Chris is ill. Um, so sorry, Chris. Hope you get feeling better. Uh, but I do have a very special guest, and that's Paul Darvasi. Hey, Paul, how are you? Great. How are you? Doing doing great. It's a super busy week, but um, you know, I, I try to remember that when you have a really busy week with like work and things like that, that means that like you're needed. <laughs> so that's I a suppose very, very that, good thought for a Monday morning. Yeah, I suppose that's a, a blessing in a way. So I'm feeling a little stretched then, but I'm making it. How about yourself? Yeah, I feel the same way. I'm 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 working at capacity, definitely at my limit, uh, but also very grateful to to have all of these things to do. Yeah, isn't that a weird balance that we face as human beings? I feel like 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 what is that perfect balance? Because I think sometimes I talk, my wife and I talk about this a lot, and I'm always like, I need to do less. I need to have less projects and things. She she always tells me, if you if you cut some of these projects out, you would just be miserable and you'd find something else, some other project, and it wouldn't be long before you, you fill in that space. Uh, so do yeah, you, think, do you struggle with that? Yeah, I think we're cut from the same cloth. I, I'm somebody who really needs to, to keep busy and, um, and I don't do well when I have downtime. I think I, I'm always looking for something to do or something to occupy me. So I, I yep. definitely need to be busy. Yeah, for sure. Well, um, so frame for our listeners, cause you've done a lot of really unique work, I would say, in the video game space and in the world and, you know, all kinds of, you are into all kinds of nerdy things. So uh-huh. how would you, uh, in a good way, here at Love Thy Nerd, nerd is a term of affection. So um, I, I would only interpret it that way. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, so yeah, how would you frame for our listeners kind of your work in, in, in games uh-huh. and technology? So yeah, it's it's a it's an interesting space. I, I I would consider living in the outer suburbs of the types of guests you would normally have on the show. Um, my most direct link with video games is I've done an enormous amount of work of getting uh, teachers and educators to think about using commercial games uh, in their classes as instructional tools, and I, I've done a lot of work developing curriculum and devising models of of using games as you know as diverse as Gone Home and Grand Theft Auto Five. Uh, in classrooms and instructional settings. Um, I also fancy myself a game designer. I've designed two uh, significant alternate reality games, one which is based on Ken Kesey's uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and the other one I co-designed with my friend and partner, John Fallon, who teaches in the States. I'm, I'm in Canada and Toronto, by the way. Um, and it's a cyber warfare simulator that, that we created between our classes. And both, both alternate reality games are about 30 days long. And the best way I describe them are, are video games in real life. Uh, I also advise on various uh, video game projects. I'm currently working with uh, the Royal Military College here in Canada, and they're they're getting a peacekeeping game off the ground. And Canada has a has a big tradition in peacekeeping. And I'm also uh, a kind of what I, I like to call a hackademic. I'm I'm almost finished my doctorate, and I've I've published uh, I've published some some scholarly type stuff. I, I did some work for UNESCO where I wrote about how uh, commercial video games can be used for peace education and conflict resolution. So I, I come at it from a few different directions. Yeah. Easy, simple, all really simple uh, projects, it sounds like. <laughs> well, it's all fun. It's, it's fun. I mean, I guess yeah. maybe it sounds, it sounds uh, it's fundamentally fun and play, right? And, and when you're really passionate about it, which I, I imagine you are because, uh, you know, I listen to your podcast and I know that you're into this and, uh, you know, the way that you feel about Far Cry 2, right? <laughs> <laughs> is, uh, is, is I can yeah. extend that to, to so many elements of games and gaming. I'm, I'm also, I feel really passionate about changing education. I, I'm really dissatisfied 
uh, with the state of education. And, and, and I see that games can, can provide some really interesting models to help us rethink uh, what education might look like in the years to come and make it a little bit more equitable and fun and interesting and engaging. Yeah. Well, this is, there's so many questions I have about your resume that you just kind of listed out. Um, but maybe it might be interesting to start with education. You said you're really dissatisfied with education in what way and and what do you hope games um, can kind of bring to the table that's a great question so I, I we're you know it's 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 not news for anybody in 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 the education gig that uh you know we're still very much running along industrial lines i mean we're still we're, there's a lot of talk about differentiated learning and, and individuated individuating instruction for the student and um, and, and for teachers to take a backseat and student-centered learning. But unfortunately, uh, despite all of these great intentions, the very hard wiring of schools, the way that they're designed, they're scheduled, um, reinforces a certain way of learning, right? And there's a lot of discipline and sitting down and dividing kids according to grades. And, and there, there's, there's all of these concentric elements that, that, that make school really a very unhappy place. They're competitive. You, you're being, you're, your self-worth is often based on a number that, that measures a very narrow range of what your possibilities are as a human being. Yeah, um, it's very competitive or very like, or the opposite of that, I think, a lot of times. Which, which like is part of why we ended up homeschooling our kids where I have three and, uh, you know, a big part of it is like, we want them to love learning. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of homeschooling and even unschooling. Those are, those are models that I've, I've, I've thought about and written about. And, uh, and I, we're not, we're pretty happy with where my kids are right now. And my wife and I have, have thrown the idea around. And, you know, to this morning, my, my daughter, who normally loves school, was just crying and saying she didn't want to go. It's so boring. People just talk at you all day. And, and, and you know, my heart breaks, right? Because kids need to run around. They need to be free. And, and one, of the, one of the things that I really would like to see is more mobility in school, um, less being tied to a chair for 23 years. Um, it's, you know, it's a, it's, it's a very coercive environment that I feel is good for some people. Some people thrive in school, you know, some people play the school game really well. Um, but I would venture to say that most don't. And, and there's, there's, there's great things about our school system. I mean, you know, industrial has almost become a bad word, but the, the positive side is it's also what gave us mass education. More people read today than ever before because of those industrial models. Um, but I feel that now as computers have, have, have replaced the factory as the center of, of, of production, um, the computer allows us to scale, but on it with an individual attention to how people learn. And that means that with hopefully in, <laughs> there'll be a rapid evolution in schools where increasingly uh, we can cater to individual needs and create more flexibility and a more dynamic education system to, to really harness as many people as we can as, as happy and productive citizens. Yeah. I'd like to communicate these things too to my uh, primary employer as well. <laughs> you know, like more uh, uh, mobile work uh, opportunities. And now I get some of that already, so I can't complain. A lot of people are stuck in a, at a desk uh, five days a week, and I don't have to do that at least. But uh, well, that's um, good. Or at the same what's desk. Your primary employment. Uh, I'm an editor for a publishing company. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. 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 So I, uh, edit books and, and curriculum and that kind of thing. So that's great. Yeah. And, and yeah. you don't have to, I mean, I imagine for that, I don't know what the, what, you know, the, the rules and regulations are, but I mean, you could do that at a Starbucks, right? You could do Oh yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the thing. I can do 80, 90% of what I do, uh, from home. And I get to do that a couple days a week. My employer lets me work from home a couple days a week or work from wherever. Um, uh, but, you know, um, I would like even uh, if that were even more days a week. <laughs> so, but. Well, I definitely think we're moving in that direction. I think telecommuting is, is, is going to, to, to increase a lot. I think there's going there's gonna to be a shift in culture where it'll be more common to work, if, if not at home, at least in like little collectives in your community and stuff like that, which I hope will reduce traffic and I hope will reduce commuting times. And, and that will also possibly really help a different vision of education because schools are often just babysitting services. If mom and dad are at work all day, then what do you do with the kids, right? You got to put them somewhere. 
And it'd be interesting that as people, you know, are not necessarily working nine to five jobs and are able to stay at home, whether that's going to incentivize a change where uh, kids can return to the community a little bit more, maybe go to the official school three days a week and stay home with their parents two days a week and do some cool online virtual reality type work, which would advance their education, uh, but not necessarily have to leave uh, the nest to do that. Yeah, definitely. And you've done a lot of work in the realm of bringing like play and games into the education space. Um, Is that something, I mean, I think it seems like obviously that's something you're passionate about. Um, What do you think play brings to the table? Like why, why are games great education tools and why why are you, why are you doing that kind of work? So I I feel that, that, um, you know, even in the animal kingdom, play is the way that you learn, right? When a, when mm-hmm. a little kitten is, is, is pawing at a ball, it's essentially simulating murder in its, uh, <laughs> in its early stages. It's playing, but it, it's getting yeah. ready for, for its predatory life uh, in adulthood. And, and I feel that, you know, when I watch my kids, uh, when they play, it's intense learning. I mean, they're almost in a zone in that, in that mm-hmm. kind of flow zone when they're playing. Uh, but you can almost see all the different uh, things that they're picking up along the way. And I think that it's a very fundamental way of human learning and we're, we, we're engaged by play. And unfortunately, beyond the early years, I mean, enlightened kindergarten programs and some, some early elementary programs will put an emphasis on play and recognize the value of play. But I think that gets lost when you start grinding out uh, in the later grades, particularly in high school and particularly in situations like much of the states where you're working towards standardized tests and trying mm-hmm. to get into top schools. And uh, that doesn't leave a lot of room for fun and play. And it, and it becomes, you know, a real grind uh, and not in the fun world of Warcraft sense of grind. Um, and and as a result, I feel that that there's an opportunity now to reinvigorate, um, uh, you know, these later classes with play by using more games and, and mm-hmm. in two significant ways, I would say. One is including games in classes, like using a video game as a type of text where you can develop some curriculum around it, but also looking at what makes video games so compelling. Why why do kids spend hours and hours in these games? And how can we graft some of those elements and restructure our education systems to resemble uh, some of the best qualities of some of the best mm. games? And you've, you know, you, uh, you mentioned earlier, you've done some work about like bringing games into the class, even like commercial games into the classroom as learning tools. You mentioned Gone Home and GTA Five, which I'm really curious about. GTA Five in particular. Um, <laughs> I'm sure you are. <laughs> but but uh, what, like, what, what has been the? Because it sounds like you've been an advocate for trying to bring trying to bring that kind of learning into various educational spaces. How's that been received? Uh, surprisingly, I have, uh, encountered very little resistance. Uh, I feel that, that I, I can, I can really do a fairly good job of justifying it to the parents in my community. I, I've been at this school where I teach for a very long time. And I think that, that, you know, I have a, a strong enough reputation that they give me a certain amount of leeway. So I've built some capital up to get away with these. And once the models are implemented, it's clear to everybody that there's a lot of learning going on, but there seems to be a greater level of engagement in the way that you're learning. And I'm not for a second suggesting that video games should replace books or, or should, should be the exclusive magic bullet. But I do feel that it's a very important tool to add to our educational repertoire. I think that, uh, you know, there are kids out there who don't like games. Uh, that's a reality. And, and, and so there's no, there's no one way to teach that's going to solve all of our problems. But I feel the more ways that you attack the problem, the more likely you're going to have a chance for a kid to connect uh, in the particular way that you're teaching. Um, so I, I, I tr- I'm very selective. I've, I've helped other teachers incorporate games of, as well. I've, you know, I've, I've done Minecraft stuff. I've done Rome Total War, um, What Remains of Edith Finch, Gone Home, uh, a few other games, uh, Her Story. Um, oh, that's a great one. Party. Oh, that's a fa- I talked about it in class today, actually. We were talking about nonlinear narrative, and I, and I, and I mentioned that as a great example. Um, so, so I feel, but, but I'm not, you know, I'm not just, you know, grab any old video game and let's make it work. I, I, I try to think very carefully about it. Um, and it really has to make sense for what my goals are. 
And, and it's been fantastic. I mean, it, it really is one of these things. And I understand there's a lot of people who feel, uh, teachers in particular, that, that there's a whole narrative about how almost video games in school are, are, are in conflict with each other, that schools are working very hard to, to reduce video game time. And, and obviously, they're, they're often associated with school shootings and, and racing and all kinds of things. And, you know, of course, I mean, whenever our, our youth are overly obsessed with something, it produces a moral panic, like rock and roll and comics and Dungeons. Yeah and dragons and, and all of these things but um but i can assure you that that once you 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 kind of break the seal and take the plunge it's a it's an incredibly effective educational tool and 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 in no teacher would argue that the best way to learn is by doing and if you think about it most books and i'm i'm, I'm a literature teacher so i i you know i, I worship at the altar of the written word I'm, i would never put you know books behind anything but many textbooks for example deal with concepts in the abstract. You know, you learn math yeah. usually abstracted from its practical implementation. And what games do really well is they're fundamentally can be used as simulations and, mm -hmm. and, and you learn by doing. So, so uh, and there's many, many opportunities, both as games become more diverse and, and there's gonna be more opportunities for simulation to actually create uh, fields and environments where people can, can enact the learning. They can actually do inside of that yeah. space as opposed to learning and memorizing and, and, and ni a nice combination of both, I think would be effective. Yeah, I think we like let the greatest, for lack of a better word, like the greatest sins that we see in the space of video gaming, um, like color our are thinking about them way too often, you know? Like, there is a problem in our culture of overuse. There's people who play video games probably more than is healthy, and there is a problem with, like, over an overabundance of violent content in video games. I think, not. I don't know, like, what kind of problem that is, but it is something that we should, like, be aware of. Absolutely. But then, but then we let those things say, like, oh, well, these, these clearly don't have a place in our schools, um, when in reality, there's this amazing diversity of games like that you mentioned, like Her Story or Gone Home that are, um, I mean, those are both like just really great stories that are told in a way that's incredibly unique, you know, because they're interactive um, in ways that people really hadn't to that point, like experienced in that way. Um, and, and so they... I think they have the chance to grab a student that maybe doesn't want to sit down and probably never will actually sit down and read Moby Dick or something like that, you know? Right. Well, that, well, that's, you nailed it because, you know, the, what I, so many, I mean, every English teacher will agree with me that there's so much theater going on. I mean, we pretend the kids are reading the books, the kids pretend they're reading the books, and then we're, we're teaching about books that, you know, fundamentally very few people are reading. And I, I would not raise the white flag on that. I think we have to rethink a little bit about the kinds of books that we get our students to read and the strategies that we use to get them to read. But I'll tell you, when I use a game like Edith Finch in my class, everybody plays it. And there's an incredibly rich narrative to work with. And then so finally, when they're doing assignments and having discussions, it's actually based on something that they've wholly experienced, as opposed to, to this kind of theater where they pretend that they've read it or they pretend because they've read online summaries or any number of strategies that have been going on since way before the internet. Um, that, uh, that, you know, we're actually talking about something real when we're discussing a game. So it's a, it's a nice way to study narrative by looking at alternative forms of storytelling. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and we've had uh, Ian Dallas on this podcast before to talk about Edith Finch. And um, yeah, it's a super powerful game in that regard. I think, like, uh, there's just a lot of layers to that narrative that... Um, you know, I think a lot of people don't realize that that kind of content's out there in the video game space to be to be you know learned from. Um, I do want to ask about GTA Five, sure. uh, Grand, Grand Theft Auto Five, because you know we talked about earlier about the moral panic that our culture has sometimes, a lot of times, about video games, and that's like Grand Theft Auto is at the very center. Anytime that comes up, that's like the game, right? That everyone's worried about because of some of the things you can do in it. Um, how did you use GTA 5 in the classroom? 
So this is this is a great uh, great topic. One of my favorites. Uh, so I it's it's the subject of my doctoral research. Um, so that's what incentivized my initially jumping into this. And you know the temptation is okay. This guy this guy just wants to use the most controversial game in the classroom because it's you know it, it's going to be uh, you know the shock value and and that type of thing. But there's actually a very good reason for it. And a few actually. One is as you probably know it's it's uh, the third best selling game of all time. I think it's over you know it's it, it's veering on 120 million copies sold. Um, and most of the consumers, which will be a surprise to no one, are adolescent boys. Uh, primarily, there's not a lot of statistics out on it, but primarily white adolescent boys. So we have, you know, 120 million copies of this game circulating. And that's, you know, an online can mean even more. And there could be pirate copies and, and this kind of thing um, that are influencing the way young men are thinking about women and race and uh, and all kinds of things in a very powerful and compelling environment. And, and GTA 5 is not a game that is easily dismissed because, you know, on one hand, people that don't know the game could write it off as, as mindless misogyny and violence. Um, but I kind of did that. Not, but, not like mindless, necessarily mindless violence, because, well, I mean, I think it's important to like recognize that GTA five is super fun to play. Like I'll get in trouble with some people for saying that, but it is like a really well-designed game. And I think it's important to like recognize that at the, at the front end. Um, but I do remember when it first came out, that was a big discussion is like, everybody was, you had kind of two camps. Um, you had the camp that was, this is just a super fun game. And like, if you don't, if you think otherwise you need to chill out. And then there was the other camp that's like, okay, yeah, sure, it's super fun, but like, it's kind of um, blatantly misogynistic and racist, right? Right. Um, right. But the way, what's really fascinating about it, though, is that the whole game is ironic, right? So when it's being, when it's when it's playing these kind of hyperbolic stereotypes of black gangsters, what it's essentially doing is. This is how American media portrays black gangsters. Isn't it ridiculous? Right. But the problem is, is that goes over a lot of people's heads. So the average adolescent who's playing this, uh, you know, and, and gamers are way more savvy than people give them credit for. To say that, that, that all of the gamers are missing the nuances of GTA 5 is wrong because they're very active on boards and there's a lot of intelligent people posting about this stuff and circulating really interesting game theory videos on various elements of the game. So there is, a, you know, that kind of community involvement definitely heightens uh, an awareness of, of reading the game as a much more sophisticated tech than you would get on the surface, right? From the from this, but but even at that level, you're still internalizing really problematic representations, particularly regarding race and women, and 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 it's a, and it's a really really compelling environment because the amount of attention that has gone into details and subtleties. And, and my research particularly focuses on race and how white adolescent boys that live within white adolescent communities uh, who are often hip hop fans um, start developing ideas about blackness, about race based on hip hop and, and that they don't really have a counter narrative because they don't really, you know, they don't live in black neighborhoods. They don't often have very close black friends. And as a result, they start creating an idea that these stereotypes, these these representations of blackness and black neighborhoods, which which they validate, you know, they, they, they listen to the lyrics and hip hop music. They watch the videos, they watch some movies. And then because GTA five deliberately references those videos that, you know, that music to construct this kind of media representation of blackness in their game young male adolescents validate that as authentic, right? They're like, oh yeah, this is, and, and, and the GTA 5 people are brilliant because they deliberately don't turn Los Angeles into Los Angeles and Los Santos and GTA 5. They represent it as how media represents Los Angeles. So that way, most people who don't know Los Angeles, which is, you know, the majority of their consumers will validate it as an authentic representation of Los Angeles because they've only experienced Los Angeles through the media. So my point in all of this is, so we have, you know, hundreds of millions of young men entering this space 
and dealing with, you know, very potentially problematic engagements with potentially problematic representations. And we have no clue how it's affecting them. And we give them absolutely no critical apparatus by which to process what's going on. So we've essentially, and I can tell you because I've done the research, there's nothing. There's absolutely nothing going on in terms of seeing any kinds of tests. I mean, there's some very sideways kind of, you know, video games and racism research that is not really, you know, very profound, um, but very like virtually nothing on GTA 5, considering that, you know, some some scholars have called it a cornerstone of youth culture. So yeah, my, that's my fascinating because, I mean, there's all kinds of studies like that about uh, film and television, I think, about like, um, you know, uh, representation and how those kinds of things affect people. There, but, but here GTA 5 is one of the most popular games ever created that millions upon millions of people are playing regularly and we we don't really know how it's affecting how we think about things like um people of the opposite sex or 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 race like that's right. that's 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 that i you know it's funny you wouldn't because we're i think maybe because we're conditioned to think about games as sort of trivial or whatever but but gosh there really should be you know that well, well, that, well that's investigation in that yeah yeah it's such a huge force it's a force right it, and 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 it's a and, and it could be for better or for worse because one thing i do know from research is sometimes what you think is going on is not what's going on right um and so but my my i'm, I'm a teacher first and a researcher second so the, the research is really interesting to me but what i felt was even more important is so if I have a group of white adolescents who don't have a lot of exposure to a lived racial difference, right? They don't live in black neighborhoods. They don't have black friends. And the most significant exposure they have to race are through hip hop and in GTA 5. I feel that, you know, this is a great place to meet them to talk about race, and so the way that I used it, I mean, I looked at gender as well. I looked at a few things, but my focus eventually became on race is to, is to basically say, you know, give them articles that talk about how race is represented, have them go home and play the game, come back and have discussions. What did you do? Who, do, who did you play? Why did you do this? Did you think of it this way? What could this mean? And it's, they're so engaged because they're talking about a game that they absolutely love but there were literally some transformative experiences where kids that had been absolutely blind to the assumptions that they had made about race and, 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 and the realities of, you know, for things like black lives and blackness and the nuances that they missed because they've only been living in a media bubble that represents a very narrow view of blackness. Um, so I, I feel that it's, it's instead of running away from games like that, schools really have an obligation to provide the media literacy to have kids think about those games. And, and the way that you can do it practically, because believe me, you're not going to get GTA 5 into too many schools. I had to jump a bunch of hoops. <laughs> and and really, you know, massage a whole bunch of, of, of people to make sure that, you know, I was able to do this. But uh, if you do run some kind of a class where there's an opportunity to think critically about media, um, you can offer the option, you know, let's look at how race is represented in film, television and video games. If you happen to already have played GTA 5, talk to me about what you're seeing, what that means. Give them some readings to think about how, how race is represented and how to think about race through a critical lens. And also to unpack whiteness, right? Like, what does it mean to be white? What are the implicit privileges to be white? How do the... Um, and, and the video game world is a very white space, right? It's very dominated by white males. It's, it's, it's kind of, it, it privileges the, the white worldview in ways that are very subtle. And, and all of that kind of critical thinking really prepares our kids, not just for GTA 5, but for a larger understanding of how to encounter media in, in a critical and responsible way. Yeah, that's great. I think that's a big part of what we're trying to, I don't know how well we do, but we're trying to do with Love Thy Nerd is that we have, we feel this need to help people be more thoughtful about nerd culture, all these things that like, that, I mean, nerd culture is such a big deal right now with, you know, I mean, not just things like GTA, but the Marvel uh, universe and, um, you know, all these things are, board games are growing like crazy right now. Um, all these spaces are spaces that, I don't, I don't think we're thinking 
not a lot of efforts being given to think about them critically or thoughtfully. Like, how is this affecting how I see the world? And uh, is it affecting how I see the world in some specific way? But, you know, having a greater awareness about those things, I think, is incredibly valuable. So the work you're, I applaud the work you're doing, for sure. Well, thank you. Um, and I, I think I'm a really, I'm often skeptical, right? I, I really, you know, my, my dedication to really want to make education a better place, you know, high hopes, right? Um, it, it really, I think, a fundamental, if you really want to see change, you really have to come up with stuff that works. And if it doesn't work, you shouldn't pretend that it does, because that's not going to get anybody anywhere. And, and what really surprised me, which, you know, is all, often a shock to me, is that it worked really well, that, that not only only were the kids having amazing discussions around around the game and around other games that I've used, but um, but through the, the the more researchy stuff, where I definitely measured changes and that type of things, there were there were some you know remarkable transformations in worldview based on that experience and their investment in that experience. Well, I do want to get to your kind of personal background, but one last kind of question about the work that you do. I think we probably have a handful of listeners who don't actually no i mean like we throw this word around a lot but what is an alternate reality game and maybe talk a little about the work you've done there sure um well it's funny when i when i designed my first alternate reality game i didn't know what an alternate reality game was either <laughs> <laughs> so, like, oh, i did that there you go i, I made one that, didn't realize I, I, that's I, what I was it was look, yeah that's right i i was desperately looking for some label for what had happened and and Countered that. I, I think that the premise was I, I'd done a master's in education and technology, and I ran into a, a phrase at the end of one of these scholarly articles that said, don't just think about putting video games in your class, think about turning your class into a video game. And I was like, wow, what a, what a fascinating concept. But at the time, I couldn't really find any models or any anybody to turn to. So it kind of germinated in the back of my mind. And, and it just happened, you know, it's a really long story, but I'm going to, in a nutshell, I was, I was really, it was the end of uh, the year. I was teaching seniors. I knew they weren't going to be engaged. I had to teach One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And through a series of, you know, strange thoughts, I thought, why don't I turn this whole thing into a game? And, and the thing is a bit of a social critique too, because I realized that the way that Ken Kesey describes Nurse Ratchet's uh, ward in the asylum uh, really kind of resembles school. So I thought, you know, the, there's a very blurry line between yeah. this asylum and the school. <laughs> oh, so it, wouldn't, yeah. it, it wouldn't really take a lot to turn the school into the asylum. And and, and what I did is I, I basically sprung it on the kids. I, I Out of nowhere, all of a sudden, there were propaganda videos and they were being sent on secret missions and they were earning points instead of grades. And 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 I made everything relevant to to the to the text. And in a sense, you know, for your listeners, it, it creates it, it's almost like a bit of theater, not a lot, uh, taking video game elements like levels and points and achievements and all those elements, but also almost running class like a story where they were no longer in a class. They were patients in an asylum and they didn't have to role play. They just had to respond to the various situations they were being put into. There was this tyrannical nurse. Um, and in the end, what was was fascinating about it is that it, and this is all very inadvertent. You know, the first time I ran it, it was I was making it up as I went along and it was an incredibly stressful and emotionally taxing thing to do. But over the several years that I ran it, I, 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 I better designed it and refined it. And, and what I realized what emerged was that while it was in some ways parodying or, or amplifying the absolutely worst parts of education, like uniformity and authority and coercion and, and humiliation, it was simultaneously kind of pointing to a vision of education where basically you had the freedom to do what you wanted. You could select your missions. You could do work on your own time. It was fun. It was subversive. It was playful. It had an economy. Uh, the game was run uh, at the end of the year where they, you know, they they feel this God-given right to do nothing, where they've, they've gotten accepted into college. And, uh, and, and so it was a way to incentivize them. And what happened was they ended up doing more work or producing more stuff during that last month of school where they typically check out than they had all the rest of the year. And they did it in, in a way that was really playful and fun. And the heart of it, one of the keys to success was that instead of assigning homework or assigning uh, you know, regular work, uh, they they could at any point request a task which was tailored to whatever they wanted to do. So a kid could say, hey, they would send a, a, an email to the big nurse, right? And the big nurse would give an email and they'd say, I'd like to do um, uh, an engineering task, 
right? They're into engineering. So then the big nurse would send them this really kind of colorful task, uh, you know, a mission or a quest where they had to create a fear de- the, the schematics for a fear detection machine, which is something that's referenced in the novel. Uh, and they would have a certain time limit, usually about 72 hours. They'd be given a cash reward, which was actually cigarettes. They were called C-sticks, which is the economy inside of the asylum and other little bonuses and rewards. And there were all kinds of these very regulated kind of rules around it to, to kind of give it that authoritarian voice. And, um, and, and because they had the freedom to do art or journalism or medicine or engineering and all the stuff related to the novel, they were really invested in doing really great work. And, and the other interesting part was that I would only accept work that met the highest requirements of the rubric, which I gave with every mission so that there was, it was an abs, you either got all the points or you had to take it back and fix it until you got all the points. It wasn't like, you know, you got 60% because you only tried half third. So the quality of the work ended up being really high as well, not because they were personally invested in it, but also because they, they, they knew that they were being held to a high standard. And it was, you know, I have hundreds and hard, hundreds of artifacts of the stuff that they produced and it's really remarkable. And they had, when they come back, they always talk about it and it was a really memorable experience for them. That's great. That's really cool. Well, uh, do you want to kind of transition and ask you about you and your life? Where did you grow up? So I, I, I was born in Toronto, Canada, um, but my parents, uh, my dad in particular, was involved in mining. He was a mining foreman and we moved to the, the far corners of the planet uh, during my early childhood. So we lived in, in Guinea, Africa. We lived in, in Labrador, Newfoundland. We lived way up north in Quebec and uh, a few other places before I eventually returned back to Toronto when I when I started grade school, I think grade two. Okay, nice. And uh, do you do you like living in Canada? Do you like Toronto? What what was your? Oh yeah, I, I I'm you know I. I I, I developed early on. Well, I love. I didn't mind growing up in Toronto in my in my early years, uh, and then I, I ended up going to school in Montreal. And I know that I think Gabe Graziani was on the show a few episodes ago, and he talked about his winters in Montreal, which which I had a, a lot of fun listening to that. Montreal's <laughs> a great. It's a great town to be a student in. So I had a lot of fun. And by contrast, Toronto started paling a little bit. And then I ended up living in South America for most of my twenties. Yeah, and and really loved it. And, and where again, in South America? I, I lived uh, in in Chile primarily, okay. but uh, I worked in tourism, so I moved around a lot. I, I worked in Bolivia and Peru and Ecuador and and uh, and even um, you know southern Argentina, Patagonia, Antarctica, various, oh various locations. Yeah, I'm a little jealous. Um, Those are areas I've always wanted to go. Oh, you should. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, there, really want to go lot. to Peru, and also really want to go to Patagonia. Yeah, you would love them. They're amazing. And actually, I would recommend if you're going to go to one place, I would say go to Peru. That's that's the best place to start. And 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 I'm just a huge fan of Patagonia. So yeah, you're, they're both great destinations. So when you go to Peru, you do like the the Machu Picchu and all that kind of stuff. Uh, absolutely, yeah. The, the the food is is the best food, you know, probably in the Spanish speaking world, barring Mexico, maybe I think Mexico and, and Peru are the two best. Um, and but it's yeah, it's it's Machu Picchu and the Inca Trail. And uh, there, there's so many great sites and ruins and there's the desert in the north and all kinds of places. So it's, mm. it's phenomenal. Yeah. So did, was like religion a part of your upbringing at all? Were you, was your family involved in a church or a religious organization? So that was, that's a really it's a really strange story. So my parents uh, were Chilean immigrants. Oh, okay. Uh, they, they, they so that to, is that why you ended up back there for a while? Was that oddly enough? To... No, okay. it was a weird coincidence where uh, a woman that I was dating at the time got a job in Chile, and I followed her. It probably was the reason that I stayed as long as I did because I, I grew up speaking Spanish. So as a result, it made it easier for me to adapt to life in the southern cone. But um, but kind I of maybe I, had some some curiosity too about your parents and their. Well, was that part of it? Bit. I kind of wanted to go to South Korea to teach English. That was oh, kind okay. of my, my goal. And then <laughs> yeah. I got sideswiped and I thought, okay, well, I'll just kind of stay with her for a year, convince her to leave and we'll leave. And, <laughs> yeah. and, uh, you know, I wasn't terribly curious. I, I had enough connection with the community and, and I'd gone on several kind of family trips. Um, but but what's really interesting is that up in, you know, Chile is, is arguably one of the most Catholic countries in the world. Um, Ireland and Chile were the last two countries in the world to make divorce illegal, for example. Um, It's a country that's largely run by the church. So what's really weird is that my parents are absolutely devoid of religion. 
So I, I grew up in this weird thing where, where I was in these small mining towns around the world. So I had no context, you know, for, you know, a community of people that went to a church or anything like that. Uh, my dad, uh, although he was born in Chile, has essentially European parents and, and his mother uh, was, was French and his dad was completely atheistic. So he grew up with no religion in his life and was certainly, you know, didn't never, never got brought into the church while he was with Chile or in Chile. And my mom, who is more legitimately Chilean than my dad, had a terrible experience in an Ursuline uh, girls school when she was a kid and just basically completely. Which is a, a Catholic girls school. Yeah, it's a, right. it's a Catholic girl school, exactly. And, and when she was young and just basically turned her back on religion completely. And so it was something that was absolutely never discussed in my home. Nothing. I knew absolutely nothing about religion and had no exposure to it because of the types of mining communities that we lived in. So what was fascinating is I think that my first religion, if anything, is that I was I was in this one of these small towns in, in northern Quebec. And it was really I mean, it was way up north and it makes the winters in Montreal just seem balmy. Right. It was, <laughs> yeah. You'd have to exit your house from the second floor because the snow went all the way up to the top. Oh, right? gosh. Yeah. Um, and, and what happened was I, I was, you know, my parents would let me wander around aimlessly when I was five or six years old. And, and there was a kind of a, my neighbors had thrown out a box of books and magazines and I dug through them to see if there was anything interesting. And I found this kind of half comic book when I was six years old of Greek mythology. And, and it's my first exposure, you know, I didn't have TV. I didn't have much of anything because there was nothing up there. And, and so I started looking through this book and I became obsessed with it. So I guess it's fair to say that my first religion was paganism. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah. Zeus and Minerva and, and all of these things, right? I was obsessed with them and I knew all the stories and, and, you know, and, and at the time, of course, I didn't see it as a form of belief, but I, I you know, it was an exposure to something larger than me. And uh, and I had really no knowledge of the church. And then what happened was we eventually moved back to Toronto. And after, you know, I went into a, you know, I was in public school and a weird set of coincidences brought me to a Bible club that had been started in my neighborhood uh, by a really nice man. And and the, the incentive to go was because I'd heard from the network uh, of kids that there was free food to be had there yeah. on a Friday afternoon. And this so, was when again, what age? Sorry. In Toronto. And I was, I was at this time probably close to eight or nine years old. And, and it was really informal and we would sing religious songs and he'd give us kind of prizes for memorizing verses from the Bible. And, and I, you know, and I, I, at that point in my life, I took Jesus into my heart and, and really, you know, found something that I think that I'd been kind of quietly looking for. And it really made a lot of sense to me at the time. And, uh, and it really was interesting because it never really played out as a church thing. It only played out as this, you know, this man's kind of informal gatherings with the kids in the neighborhood and it was fun. And, you know, we'd go on, on trips to the zoo. So it was like a Bible club, but without any real pressure to go to a formal church or a formal church setting. And, uh, and as a result of that, uh, the four friends in particular, my brother and, and, and my best friend and his brother, the four of us made a, a decision one day in the schoolyard that we would switch to Catholic school, the Catholic school up the street. Yeah. Um, because kind of a- you had made this, uh, decision, you know, you'd, you'd ask Jesus, was that connected to it? Yeah, okay. because we felt one that there was, you know, the I, I lived in a neighborhood that's had some, you know, some pretty rough sectors, and and our school was, you know, definitely inclined to to fighting and that kind of thing, and we just kind of wanted to get away from that, and also felt that it made more sense for us to go. We we had this kind of idyllic vision of Catholic school being all these great God fearing people, which ended up being close to exactly the opposite of. What oh we no. Had got there but um but we made you know it was a really kind of i remember you know we were young and we just sat around and had a meeting and decided we were going to convince our parents and and i wasn't even baptized right so i had to to get into catholic school i had to convince my mom to get me baptized my mom you know went along with it and she did what she had to do she was never you know she was very open to to my following whatever path i wanted i was gonna ask about that so they i guess it didn't bother them that you were going to this like bible club thing um Prior. No, not at, okay. not at all. No, my mom, my mom wasn't practicing nor was, but she wasn't, you know, she has her relationship with the church, but she would never impose that on me. Uh, and she never did. 
And, and I should say that my parents were divorced when we lived in that mining town. I think it may have driven them to divorce. So I was, I was currently at the time, my dad stayed in Quebec, which is the French province in Canada. And I was currently living with my mom at the time. And there's an important reason I have to mention that is that so a few years into Catholic school, my mom gets remarried um, to a gentleman who is a, a practicing Christian and goes to church every Sunday. Yeah. And, and, Protestant. And, Pardon me. Hey, he was Protestant or no Catholic? Okay, he's Catholic Roman too. Roman Catholic. Yeah, yeah. All of this is playing out in a in a Roman Catholic scheme, and then uh, and then so what happened was that uh, he started forcing us to go to church, and mm-hmm. and through my whole kind of process, I nobody had ever forced me to do anything. I had been willingly part of of this belief system that I yeah. I, I bought. You know, willingly I subjected yourself to Catholic school. <laughs> well, that's it, right? Exactly. And, and and even the Catholic school was pretty light. I mean, we had to take a few religion classes and that type of thing. You know, we do prayers in the morning, which we wouldn't in public school. But it was, you know, I remember deliberately being, you know, the kinds of things that scare you. Before I started Catholic school, I was panicking because I didn't know if I would be doing the sign of the cross properly. I didn't know if there was a certain way of doing it. And everybody would, you know, would see me as, as this outsider. And I, I, I it was uh, definitely a concern for me. Yeah. Um, I remember going to mass with some friends like when I was in like middle school, high school and being nervous that I didn't know the like lingo and stuff. So I can, I can relate. Yeah, that's that's the thing, right? They know all the responses, and and it was all new to me, and especially because my, you know, the the trajectory of my faith at the time had not included, uh, you know, the formal religious aspect, the formal church aspect. Um, and what happened, weirdly enough, is both my the dawn of adolescence and all the kind of skepticism and rebellion that comes with it, and the kind of increasing dislike for being coerced into going to church every Sunday kind of distanced me from religion and eventually uh, turned me away from it. Uh, not religion, but, but, but Catholicism and, and Christianity. Um, and through my high school and university years, one thing that I was always interested in is, is, is the Bible. I'd always had an interest in the Bible. Always had, and, and it became less of a religious text for me and more of a literary text. And because I eventually studied literature, um, you know, knowing about, you know, you know, the, the, the Greek gods and all the classical mythology as well as the Bible was really useful. And, and I, and, but what I retained from all of that is, is an open mind and, uh, and, and a deep sense of spirituality that, that is all, that has never found a home. And, and that's why I would classify myself as a hopeful agnostic um, I see that, that, you know, I'm always very, you know, when people are very quick to dismiss religion, I say, look, you know, don't let the, the human institutions get in the way of the messages that lie underneath, right? Because there's a lot of, there's a lot of, there's a lot more going on, I think, in any religious practice than we often uh, see, you know, there, there's a lot of depth and a lot of beauty to, to all of these different faiths. Um, and, and that I, I, am not one to dismiss any of them. I'm, I'm really curious about all of them. And, and, and I still, you know, I'm, I'm always looking and thinking, and I think in many ways, my, my, I switched to literature as a way to connect with the universe and a way to think about things on a larger scale. And, and, I'm, and I feel that I'm somebody who's always going to be searching and keeping an open mind about the possibilities. I don't close my mind to anything. Um, but I do my, you know, my skepticism lies in, in the fact that the, that we manifest our ideas of things that are so much greater than us in very human ways. And, and by, and sometimes those human ways can limit, our, our view of the possibilities that lie, you know, latent in the universe or whatever, whether it's by design or not, I, I cannot conclusively say whether it is or it isn't. Um, I'm also interested in the idea that we may be living in a simulation. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, well, that's so fascinating. Yeah, I think, you know, as a Christian, I can honestly say, like, that's something that I think is, um, like problematic, I would say about the way people sometimes read the Bible is that like, and and I'm one of those, I don't know, some people think it's crazy. I'm one of those crazy people that do think that it's an inspired uh, text, but it is also very human. Like it is a very human book. Um, Like the fingerprints of human beings are all over it. Um, And I think, I think, I think we would read it 
uh, even Christians would would benefit a lot from from realizing that as they read it, it would benefit them more, I think, in a way. Um, so it's it's interesting that you brought that up. It's funny when you say that it, it almost it's almost that the book inheres the duality of Christ. It, it because the way you're describing by inspired, you mean that it, it retains kind of not just the human fingerprints, but that that kind of breath of of divine inspiration, right? And and that and that uh, it, it's kind of that meeting point between the divine and the human, and that and which very much I think characterizes kind of Christ's role in in, in Christianity, and and you know I don't I I would never I would never dismiss the inspirational aspect of it. In fact, I think that the the barrier with the Bible is really the language, the fact that we're reading it in translation, and, and I'm convinced that if we were able to read it in its original language, there are all kinds of little nuances that would pop up that would really show you. Uh, uh, how divinely inspired it may very well be. Yeah, yeah. I tried to do that. I, I, I've actually been to seminary and uh, I studied Greek and Hebrew. Uh, wow. Did a lot of Greek and got really good at it for a while uh, to where I could read the Greek New Testament. Um, Hebrew never clicked with me in the same way, but it is it is a game changer, I will say, when you when you can read the, the text in its original language is sort of a game changer for for understanding. Um, also just like making it, I think it's a really important thing for, for modern day Christians to try to like do the best we can. And we, we can't do this completely, but do the best we can to get in the mindset of a, you know, first, like if you're reading the new Testament, get in the mindset of a first century reader in, you know, right. Philippi or, or, or in Rome or something like that. Or Corinth. Um, you're right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot. I think sadly, a lot of the times, the way we read the Bible as Westerners is like, ah, give me some platitudes, uh, like you know, just give me like a quippy one-liner that I can that I can hold on to this week. Which I'm not saying that's completely wrong or something, or that there's no value in those quippy one-liners. I think right. a lot of people find find benefit from it, but. Um, well, that's that's the beauty of the book, right? That it services a whole range of audiences, in in the sense that if you're you know you're a super intellectual theologian, you're going to find nourishment, and if you're just somebody that goes to church to get a very quick guideline as to your behavior that week, you also get that as well. Yeah, right. Yeah, you described yourself as a, a, a as a hopeful agnostic. I'm curious if you could answer, like, what keeps you hopeful. So what I what I feel is that I'm I'm very suspicious of the coherence of our lives, right? Um, things seem to be, you know, it could very well be a big, you know, biological accident or a chemical that that has brought us on this planet and triggered, you know, evolution and all these types of things. But I feel that the that there's there, there's something so coherent about the way that my life has played out. I mean, I'm stuck in my body. I'm stuck in my view. I, I it's all I can attest to. Um, that I, I can't help but think there may be some design there, right? Uh, and I, I think it's hard to get away from that. So that's the hopefulness of my agnosticism. And, and what all my agnosticism means is that I, I just don't feel that within my, my limitations as a human being, considering what we know of the vastness and complexity of the universe, that I'm, you know, a very, uh, a very eccentric uncle of mine who was a painter once said to me, he said, you know, Paul, we, we share, uh, you know, you look at a flower, a flower is a living thing. How can a flower articulate human life? Right. And, and what, it, what that implied to me is that we very much could be the flowers in somebody else's garden. Right. That, that we we don't we're living and we breathe, but we don't have the sensory or the intellectual access to a greater form of existence. And even that may not be what we like to think of as God. That could be just kind of the next level. And at the very top of all this, there may be some great designer or maybe the the entire collectiveness of all of it together is, you know, God or, or, or a spirit or, or, or some, you know, unending being uh, that manifests itself in all sorts of ways. And, and like I said, I, I keep a very open mind and, and these thoughts really, you know, they, they really intrigue me. And, and I, and I'm, I'm very aware, even the way that I teach, you know, my students, I'm, I'm always bringing up, you know, philosophical ideas and questions, which they really like, that really agitate uh, an easy understanding of, of the way that we take life on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and I'm generally optimistic, you know, I, I, you know, it's hard to be optimistic these days, but I am. And I feel that, that uh, there's a lot of beauty in the world and we tend to lose sight of that. And it's important to remember that. Um, 
but so I guess that that accounts for my hopeful agnosticism. Yeah, yeah, I gotcha. And uh, you mentioned earlier you're married. And you have kids. I am. Yeah, I'm married and I have kids. How long and, have you been uh, married, and how old are your kids? So I've been married for well, I've been with my wife for 18 years, uh, but we've been married for nine. Yeah, and she is uh, she is fully secular. That's, that's a good spell. Yeah, it is. Yeah, we've been together. Yeah, we're. I'm, I'm fortunate enough that we we've, we've kind of figured each other out. Yeah, uh, we we've we've definitely you know, marriage is never a 100 percent easy thing. It always requires a bit of work and sacrifice, and, mm-hmm. and and certainly that's been the case. But we're we're partners in crime, which I think is fundamental. We're yeah, we're best friends, and and that's seen us through all kinds of things. That's a really like beautiful thing when you you mentioned this phrase like we kind of figured each other out like. Um, so it's, it's funny. You were, you were asking about my wife and kids and, and I'm, I'm in, in the, you know, in the uh, pursuing the theme of faith, what was really interesting is, so my wife is very secular. I would say she's even, you know, she's, I, I would barely call her agnostic, although I think she does, she does identify as agnostic, um, and, and very suspicious of religious institutions, hmm. all, yeah. all religious institutions. And so I've, I've Has definitely she had some heard, bad experiences or. Not directly, but I think that she sees that a lot of really bad stuff has happened to a lot of people because sure. of religion, a lot yeah. of wars and death. And, and she says, how can this be good? You know, right. even yeah. if the intentions are good, the institutions are not good. And, and it's and it's so that's her view. But what, where I really felt it, where I really, really felt uh, the absence of formal religion in my life and, and really the yearning to, to have faith was when, you know, my kids first encountered my oldest son, my son in particular, first encountered the idea of death when, mm. you know, that moment when a kid, how old are your kids, Drew? My oldest is eight. I have a five-year-old and a almost two-year-old. Yeah. Okay. So we're identical minus the two-year-old. I have an eight and a five as well. Yeah. Okay. Nice. So, so we're in the same boat. We've, you know, we're, we're living a similar reality and we would have, we really considered having a third, but it just didn't make sense for a whole bunch of reasons sure. for us. But we, you know, it's definitely been a lingering thing for us. Yeah. Um, yes. You know, it's addictive, right? Once you have kids, you want to have as many kids, <laughs> yeah. which may not be the case for everybody, but we've, we've had a good run and I would have loved to have more kids. But yeah. We started sort of late and all sure. kinds of stuff. But uh, so, so, and, and, you know, when my kid first asked, well, what happens after you die? Like I really more than anything else, wanted to say, well, you're going to go to heaven and meet all the people that, mm. that have, we've lost. And that's, you know, I, but I couldn't in good conscience tell him that because it's not really what I believe. So I, I, and it really put me at a crossroads, even to the point that I think could the origin of religion be in wanting to tell your kids that there's life after death mm. because it's so painful to tell them that there isn't. And, and, and I yeah. just don't know what I, you know, that's what I said. I didn't definitively say that, mm-hmm. that, you know, that's it. You know, you go, dark and the worms start, you know, chewing at you, but, uh, I, I, (laughs) (laughs) a little morbid, um, but, but I, I, and I, but I didn't want to say that it, you know, necessary because I don't know. I really don't know. I, if, you know, if I, you know, wake up in a, in another reality, once, you know, my eyes allegedly closed for the last time, I will not be surprised. However, if it's darkness, I will not be surprised either. Um, I won't have the opportunity to be surprised. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. Um, but, but that's one of the, I think what you're articulating is probably what I find to be the hardest thing about parenting. And that's just being honest with your kids, like right. about what you believe about the world and about life. And, um, yeah, I mean, I like, obviously I differ with you about, I, I, or I feel, I would say I have a, maybe a greater confidence in what I believe about the afterlife maybe than, than you do in a sense, if that makes sense. But of course, yeah. I like totally applaud you for being, the best thing you can do for your kids when they ask you questions is tell them what you what you think. Um, I think so. And I think think that I I look at my the way that I was raised and how I came to it in a very because the nice thing about the way that I came to religion, wherever I find myself on my journey right now is that it was real. It wasn't imposed on me. I wasn't following in my parents footsteps. I kind of really found it. And it was something that I was drawn to. And it meant a lot to me in a very real way. And it's um, and I and so that what I can do for my kids maybe a little bit better than my parents did for me is instead of having no religion like and it wasn't a deliberate you know thing in their life they just really don't even to this day they just don't talk about it they don't think about it it's just not on their radar right which is really bizarre um, 
but and and both of them, even though they're they're very different people. But what I want is I want to expose my kids to as much as possible. I talk to them about Buddhism. I talk to them about Judaism. I, I talk about Christianity and different views, never in a way dismissive, just saying this is a path and this is a path and this is a path. And as they grow older and, you know, depending on the kinds of people that they are and the, you know, how, however life, you know, whatever, whatever life awaits them to know that there are many different ways to nourish your, your, your spiritual needs. And hopefully that they're going to find a path that satisfies them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We've had to deal with those questions the last couple of years. My, my oldest started asking those kind of questions probably when she was like, five or six, maybe even younger. Um, but for about a year ago, it was just like a constant thing with her of like asking questions about heaven and what happens when people die and, and those kinds of things. And, um, yeah, I, (laughs) I will say like, there's, I feel fortunate in that regard of like, that my Christian faith gives me a very hopeful answer about that. <laughs> you know, that, that, um, I feel like I can say in good conscience, like, I think, um, I actually believe that Jesus is going to, that God's going to bring heaven to bear on earth. Like, I think that, that, that's something a lot of people miss about, I think about the Bible's vision of the future is actually this idea of like, that's, you know, Jesus, but God becoming flesh, like that's what's going to happen. I think I'm hopeful anyway. I hope like I have faith that it will, that he's going to actually renew this world and everything that's broken about it and everything mm-hmm. that's wrong about it and everything that's really like messed up about it. He's going to make right again and, and, um, you know, bring it back to, to, to what he meant for it to be, um, in the beginning. That's, and that's like a really hopeful answer. And I always feel like bad for people who don't have as like clear. I mean, just the uncertainty of it has got to be, a little bit, um, I don't know what the word is, but a little bit um, like hard, difficult yeah, to, well, to share with your kids. It's really funny you mentioned that because about feeling bad because I, I was I had the opportunity to go to India. I went with a school trip where we we helped build a school in in, in a province in southern India, and we were in Delhi for a few days. And I was on a rickshaw. And the guy who was in India's uh, the way I describe it is everybody has their foot in another world, right? Like everybody is, is there's, it's, you know, whether you're, you know, so many religions and, and it's almost like they're, people are really invested in their religion, the religions and their spirituality. And, and you can feel it almost like more, more palpably than I've felt it anywhere else. And the guy who was, uh, was, was driving a really nice guy. I mean, he was bone thin and was wearing very ragged clothing and didn't look like he'd, you know, he'd wash too often and obviously quite poor. Um, and you know, here I am the, the kind of wealthy Westerner that has everything I could ever hope for. And, um, and he, he, he was driving me and he really nice smiley guy. And he turns around and he says, I'm, you know, I think he was, he was Hindu and that, you know, he's got friends that are Muslim and he's talking to me about religion and he looks at me and he says, so what, what's your religion? And I looked at him and I, you know, I was kind of, I stopped for him. I said, well, to be honest, I don't think I have one. And honestly, the way he looked at me is that he looked sorrowful. Like he felt so badly for me, you know, that, and, and here's this moment where, you know, I'm, I'm the, the well-off Westerner and, and here's this guy that probably materially has very little, but I think he saw in me a very, very, uh, you know, you know, a, a spiritual poverty that he felt really, you know, terrible for. Um, and, and, but, but the other side is I, I do feel in my particular case that even though I don't subscribe to a formal religion, I think I'm articulating a form of spirituality that makes sense to me, that guides me. I don't fear death. Um, uh, at least, well, not right now as we're talking, <laughs> I'm, sure, <laughs> <Give us some time. laughs> I'm sure under certain circumstances, uh, I, I might have that fear, uh, but but I but I you know I, I I feel that I'm I'm reconciled with the fact that I've left whether you know good or bad or whatever who knows an indelible mark in the universe. You can't live and not leave your mark in the universe. You know the echoes like you know the pebbles in the pond will will keep it on no matter what. That I've left an impression on those around me that will hopefully kind of you know keep moving through time to some degree. But you know ultimately, and and when it's my time to pass. I worry more about those I leave behind, as I think many of us do, than ourselves, right? And and if it is, I'm, I'm confident that you know, if 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 God is the God that you worship, and that that I am confident that a, a being that is that good 
will forgive me for not going to church if he knows my heart or it knows my heart or they know my heart, right? Um, and, and I feel that I don't necessarily have to subscribe to very earthly rituals in order to be accepted into a higher order. You know, I've, I've, I've tried to live my life in a good way. I've tried not to harm people. I'm fallible like anybody else and have tried to contest or, or contend with that fallibility in the best way possible. Um, and I think that, you know, I, I was actually talking about this with my wife the other night, that that in the end, uh, I feel that if, if, if that is kind of what's awaiting on the other side, I think that I will hopefully in a, on a, in a religion that's based on forgiveness, be forgiven for not having played exactly by the rules, because fundamentally, I've tried to be honest with myself, you know, and. And I would love to be in a situation where I could have absolute faith or even a wavering faith in, in something bigger than me, but it just it's just not genuine to what I genuinely feel or what, what's in my heart at this moment. But what I do feel is that there is more going on than meets the eye. And I'm, I'm trying to get, in, you know, sort of glimpses of that uh, by, you know, in various different ways and through various different channels. Mm, yeah. Yeah, gotcha. Well, this has been great, man. I've really enjoyed chatting with you and hearing your perspective and all the, I mean, I wish we had, we had to have you on another time because I have so many questions about the work that you do in, uh, in education and gaming and, uh, alternate reality. Like we could have a whole, we could have a whole other, uh, other discussion about that for sure. Um, but oh, uh, I'd, I'd be honored. It yeah. was it was so great to talk to you. You've made me think about a lot of things that I haven't thought about in a while. So that's been really great. Well, that's always uh, we, we get that a lot. And I'm always I'm always glad to hear it. So. Um, so, yeah, cheers. Uh, well, uh, where can people find you on the uh, online? So I have a, a slightly neglected uh, blog site, but that has some, you know, some interesting stuff in terms of what I do um, uh, called ludiclearning.org. Okay. Uh, where cool. I share some of the work that I do. Yeah. But uh, I also write a lot for, for various publications and education and games. So so really, I think if you do a Google search on my name, because it's not a very common name, uh, Paul Darvazi, P-A-U-L-D-A-R-V-A-S-I, uh, you'll find all kinds of all kinds of little things that may be of interest. Nice. Cool. And you're on Twitter. Are you active on there? I am. Sorry, I should have mentioned that. Yeah, I'm very active on Twitter. Cool. Yeah. So it's just at Paul Darvasi. Super That's easy. Right. Um, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm Drew Dixon 82. Uh, you can follow all that we're doing on all the socials. Just search for Love Thy Nerd on Twitter, Facebook, uh, Instagram. Um, there's also a Facebook community that we have. It's just called Love Thy Nerd Community, and it's on Facebook. So just search for Love Thy Nerd Community. When you're on Facebook, you're going to want to like our page, the Love Thy Nerd page, and then ask, request to join uh, our community. And once we have ensure that you're not a robot we'll let you in uh hmm. and uh uh sorry robots uh but uh yeah that's i think that's about it we have a whole podcast network go check out free play and the pull list the pull list is our comic podcast free plays gets into all areas of nerd culture and is super fun to listen to um go check out lovelinerd.com for more um articles content about nerd culture and why it matters um and uh yeah that's about it uh thanks again paul this is awesome yeah, it was a real pleasure. I really appreciate you having me on the show. For Thank sure. You very much.